Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Blair Rubel on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Washington's U Street, a biography. Not so many years ago, the host of the show, that is me, lived very near U Street. I had a vague impression that it was historical in some way. People had talked to me about the U Street Corridor, and I had heard about Ben's Chili Bowl because presidents, or presidential candidates rather, often go there for photo opportunities. More than that, I did not know. So when I saw this book, I said to myself, I really should learn something about the neighborhood I used to live in. And I'm really glad I picked the book up because it's terrific. For those of you who have visited Washington, D.C., or live in Washington, D.C., or have gone to Ben's Chili Bowl, you'll find that this book explains, as Blair says, the biography of U Street, and it is quite significant in many, many ways. It's reflective of the history of the African-American community, but it's also reflective of the history of Washington, D.C. and the nation itself. I really enjoyed talking to Blair today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Blair. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm I'm fine. How are you? That's good. I'm very well. Today, we're talking with Blair Rubel about his book, Washington's U Street, a biography. When I heard about this book, I said, you know, I have to interview Blair. Not only do I know, I've known him for a long time, but I used to live, as I was telling him in the pre-interview, I used to live near U Street, actually just a few blocks from it, and I would sometimes ride my bike down there. And it, it uh, I'd heard about the U Street Corridor. It's one of the first things that was mentioned to me when I moved to Washington, D.C. many years ago, um, that there was this place, the U Street Corridor. I did, I'd never really heard of it, uh, but it's a, it's a cultural landmark in, in D.C., and, and it's really a cultural landmark in the history of the United States, particularly for African Americans. So I was glad to read about it in um, Blair's book, and I hope that you get a chance to read the book as well. I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are in Washington, D.C., and I really hope that you go by and, and pick up a copy of it and read it because it's very enlightening. Blair, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up in suburban New York, and I went to college at the University of North Carolina, uh, where I decided I would become a Soviet specialist, and I trundled off to the University of Toronto for my graduate work. And um, after a stint at Leningrad State University, I eventually um, landed back in Washington, D.C., and I've, uh, aside from a couple of years in New York, I've been in Washington since the mid-1970s. And I've... Um, uh, I've written about cities, um, certainly a lot about Russian cities, uh, but in recent years I've been moving away from the Russian focus and just have begun to write about cities in general. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never actually seen your CV, but does it have a line on it, fought the Cold War and won? No, no, no. no. Well, I, 
uh, it, it may say veteran of the Cold War, but um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not actually sure who, who ended up winning okay. the Cold War. But that's a different that's a different conversation. Yeah, no, it's a different. Yeah, right. That's true. But I mean, I was thinking being a Soviet specialist and things like that. You know, I was I was trained in that era as well, and I often think to myself, well, you know, if I have nothing else to rest my laurels on, it will be that I maybe contributed to uh, the winning of the Cold War. I don't, I don't well, know, that, that that was a different different world. Yeah, no, it really uh, was. No, it's true. Yeah. And um and and this gives me a wonderful opportunity to ask a question which you pose very intelligently and wittily in the book itself. That is, how does a uh, guy from suburban New York trained as a Russian specialist in Canada, uh, how does he come to write a book about U Street? Well, like all good book ideas, this started in a bar. Uh, so, um, no, my wife and I are jazz fans, and, and we have been hanging out at a, a local D.C. jazz club for a long time called Twins. And the original Twins um, was in a different part of town, but uh, about 10 years ago now it moved down to U Street, and we followed it. And it's a, it's a really wonderful club, very informal. It was always one of the spaces, few spaces in Washington that welcomed everybody. So you could go and and end up sitting next to somebody who worked at the White House or somebody who uh, was a D.C. school teacher or, or whatever. So we really liked the place, and we liked the place for its feel. And one night, I guess about six, seven years ago now, there was a lot of tension in the air. And it, it kind of struck us as a little bit strange because this wasn't a place that, that uh, had that kind of edge that sometimes race would bring to situations in Washington. And I, and I knew the people there well enough. I, I asked them why, and it turned out that it was the week when um, a building with million-dollar condominiums that opened up across the street. And what was interesting is that wasn't what bothered them. What bothered them was in that building, and it didn't last very long, there was a, a tanning salon. And the notion that there would be rich white people coming to U Street to get a tan uh, deeply offended them. And I, I began asking them why, and they started talking about the neighborhood. And when uh, Sally and I left twins that night, I turned to her and said, this deserves a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure many of the authors you, you've talked to, Marshall, have had this moment when you think, what a great idea for a book. But of course, you're totally naive about what would be involved. And uh, it, it, that, that night started me on a, a much longer odyssey of um, learning about Washington, D.C. Yeah, I have an idea for a book about every day. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, um, so, so kudos. Yeah, to the ideas are the easy part. Yeah, yeah, right. The ideas are easy, but uh, yeah, product. That's what editors want. And so, um, why don't we begin to tell the story of uh, U Street? And it's part of the story of Washington. And a little background, I think, would be helpful. Um, when uh, Washington's a pretty new city, right? It is a pretty new city. This part of Washington took shape during the Civil War. And it's just at the edge of um, the original Lafont plan. And if you uh, help some of your listeners visualize this, if you stand at the White House and walk up 16th Street heading north and follow the alphabet, you'll eventually get to U Street. Yep. 
And just beyond that, uh, there's a hill, at, which is the, uh, a bluff, which is, is really um, the fall line of the Potomac. And then once you go up on the bluff, you're in a part of the city that developed after the L'Enfant Plan. Mm-hmm. So it was the very edge of the L'Enfant Plan, and in theory it always existed, but in fact it was pretty much vacant land uh, before the Civil War. And then a couple of things happened during the Civil War. Uh, the city explodes. It's it's a frontline city. There are a lot of people coming here. Uh, the Union Army uh, is camped in the area and in other areas around the periphery of the city. And s- slaves who were escaping primarily from Virginia and Maryland, when they got to D.C., they were declared contraband of war. And they would move near army encampments for protection. So there are a number of long time now traditional African American neighborhoods in Washington that started basically around uh the the contraband encampments and this was one. Um then what happened also is the streetcars uh begin to go out 7th Street, 14th Street and it becomes a main transportation corridor. So you're coming out of the Civil War with uh this this part of the town developing very quickly. And it had um, uh, a mix, uh, a racial mix, and an uh, so economic mix in it. And it, it, the neighborhood kind of explodes into being uh, within a decade of the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And are the buildings that we see on U Street today, if someone were to walk up and down it, um, are they buildings that would have been built in the 1860s and 70s? Well, on U Street itself, there are a few of those left, but this was also the riot. Yeah. corridor uh, in 1968, uh, an outbreak of um, civil unrest. So uh, on U Street itself and on 14th Street, some of the buildings were burned, which becomes part of the story. Mm-hmm. But if you just walk a couple of blocks off, you're d- you have a late 19th century cityscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what happens is as uh, Jim Crow is introduced in Washington, uh, with the collapse of Reconstruction, so around 1880, uh, this becomes uh, a, a pro- area for prominent African Americans. So Duke Ellington grew up uh, on a street that is almost all late Victorian era houses, mm-hmm. uh, and and these. Uh, so that part of the cityscape is right there. But if you actually just walk down U Street, you wouldn't necessarily feel like this was a, a 19th century neighborhood. Yeah, I see. I guess I was trying to understand exactly how it was developed and for whom, because these um, ex-slaves by this time certainly had no money, and they weren't living in these uh, late Victorian dwellings. Who, who developed this area and who lived there prior well, to the Duke Ellington and such? This is the first discovery for me. This <clears throat> this is a time when there was a, a guy running the city named Boss Shepherd, uh, and um, the, there's a whole range of what are now called mid-city neighborhoods in D.C. that were built at once. Uh, these are primarily Victorian brick homes. And remember, the population of the city exploded during the Civil War. And after the Civil War, uh, the people who had moved here began to settle, and there was a demand for housing. What happens in these neighborhoods, and this is a function of the L'Enfant Plan, these are large blocks. So... Uh, more respectable people were living on the brick homes facing the streets, but there were alley dwellings behind them. And these could be African-American, they could be white, they could be racially mixed, but this is where 
poor people who were trying to get a toehold in the city would settle. So you had um, poor people and rich people and white people and black people really living on top of one another uh, when the neighborhood comes into being. Mm -hmm. And that was the first discovery for me because I had sort of starting at the other end from that conversation in the bar, I, I was more aware of the place of the neighborhood in African-American history. And I didn't understand that when it started out, it was really uh, racially mixed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that happens at this, this time is a number of institutions that would become prominent in the African-American community take root. Howard University, what became Dunbar High School, uh, the first public high school for, for African-Americans, um, a number of very prominent church congregations, uh, Freedmen's Hospital. Uh, these were major institutions which took root in the community, which meant that there were professional jobs for African-American professionals in this community. Mm -hmm. and, and the other part of this is uh, D.C. went into the Civil War with uh, the largest, most prosperous uh, community of, of free blacks in the country. So you, you already had a very successful African-American uh, professional class even before the Civil War started. So when you come at the other end of the Civil War, uh, the community really has an opportunity to blossom quite quickly. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned <clears throat> living in these alleyways because uh, actually I've seen uh, – there, there. I don't remember the name of the photographer, but there are some famous pictures of of these alleyways in the 1920s and 30s where African Americans lived, and then whites lived on the street front. And this is the only place in the United States I've ever seen what they call in Europe a muse. Uh, that is a kind of yeah, an area well, behind. It, yeah, there are also alley houses in Baltimore and some other um, uh -huh. older American cities. But what made Washington unusual was the size of the blocks that were created by Lafont. Mm -hmm. So uh, in some cases, these are really large um, maze-like settlements, and and they had a very important social function because this is where poor people who were coming to town from the countryside could settle and kind of mm -hmm. figure out urban life. And while uh, for outsiders, these seemed to be dangerous, threatening places, for the people living in them, they were kind of protected enclaves in which they could sort of create their own sense of community. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're very complicated, complicated areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they became the subject of a lot of uh, social science, early social science research in the early uh, 20th century. Mm. So there's, it's, there's a lot of inf information about them. Mm. Yeah, just, you know, I've seen pictures of them. They're famous pictures. I imagine they were taken by social reformers of some kind in the progressive era. But just to move on a little bit, the um, – so – the area is of mixed race. At some point, however, the whites um, move out. Am I right about that? Yeah, largely. I, not completely. There are, there are always some white businesses and some white families that are in uh, the area. But basically what happens with the collapse of Reconstruction, which in Washington also meant the collapse of home rule, um, you have the beginning of Jim Crow segregation in Washington. And uh, this was one area which became a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And because of the presence of, as I said, Howard University, the churches, Freeman Hospital, the high school, it became um, the neighborhood that was most in vogue for uh, the African-American middle class, which, which also was very large in Washington because of 
of the federal presence. Mm-hmm. So it becomes um, largely uh, it it becomes thought of as largely the the very upscale African American community in a segregated city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more complicated than that because there are always different socioeconomic groups in the area, but. But its image is of, you know, this was the place to be if 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 uh, you were going to make it as an African American in Washington, mm-hmm. and because there were so many prominent people there and successful people there, a vibrant uh, African American press took root there, banks, businesses. Uh, by the time you get to the 1920s, there are about 300 black-owned businesses along the general area of, of U Street from roughly Seventh to. 14th Street. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a real dynamic economic center. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, uh, historiographically, everybody knows, I don't know if everybody, but a lot of people know about the Harlem Renaissance. Why don't we talk about the U Street Renaissance? Was there such a thing, a period where, you know, I guess blacks all over the United States knew about this place? Well, certainly uh, blacks have always known about the, about the area, um, but it's it's interesting. It's right right now the area is kind of packaged as you know before Harlem there was U Street, and to some extent that was true. And a lot of the writers who ended up in Harlem in the twenties uh, had initially collected around Howard University and in the salons around Howard University, and and there was a a, a very um, uh, successful, prominent, and at one point in the early 20th century, this was the largest urban African American community. But what happens is segregation begins to drive people out. So uh, uh, you talk about somebody like Langston Hughes, mm-hmm. who spent time uh, in the area. He hated the place. And what <laughs> uh, Ralph Bunch um, uh, taught at Howard. These are people who couldn't get to New York fast enough because of, of segregation in Washington mm-hmm. and because of divisions within the African-American community. So while it's right to say uh, before Harlem there was U Street, there's also a reason why a lot of creative people moved to New York. Uh, mm-hmm. it, and and as often happens in these situations, um, the kind of creativity snowballs. Mm-hmm. For somebody like Duke Ellington, it was just if you're going to make it in the music business, you have to move to New York, and he always uh, remembered the neighborhood well, certainly much more fondly than somebody like Langston Hughes did mm-hmm. or, or Jean Tumor. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, part of, but part of the story is just that you know, Harlem takes off and it's bigger and there's mm-hmm. more money and there's more opportunity and it's a, it's a relatively more open place. Right. Well, maybe you could, one of the nice things about the book is sprinkled throughout it are kind of vignettes about some of the leading lights of the day, whatever day that might happen to be. I can't wait to get to Marion Barry because I ate next to him once. I did. Uh-huh. Yeah, I did. I got to, I had my, yeah, no, I was, uh, it was an Adams Morgan and he sat down next to me. It was quite, it was late in his career. Let's put it that way. So could, tell us about some of the people that were, uh, again, the leading lights in the sort of um, the uh, used to in its heyday. Well, I mean, it, it really was a community of remarkable people because um, you, you did have uh, you know, Howard University there, which which attracted people, and also because for an educated uh, African American elite, they couldn't get jobs in white institutions. So teaching at at what became Dunbar High School was uh, really a prestigious. Uh, job, and so you had a, a whole number of 
intellectuals who were around the place. First of all, you had uh, the clergy people um, who were intellectual uh, leaders, and um, the Grimke brothers um, were very important. You had Carter Woodson, and who, who uh, really started um, uh, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, and and um, which um, became incredibly influential. You had a, a number of very impressive um, women activists, uh, Mary Church Terrell, Anna Julia Cooper, um, you know, a lot of, at one point, I, I don't remember the figures off the top of my head, but I, I wanted to make a point of how important the community was, and I took a, lo- a look at the number of um, NAACP medal winners, uh, and um, you know, virtually every year there were people who were associated one way or another with this community who were being recognized as leaders in the national African American community. Uh, and and one of the one of the challenges for me, and one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is this is a neighborhood which I dare say even now probably most of your listeners have never heard of, and yet it it was such an important center of of American creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I haven't even talked about music and dance and yet you know if when we think about similar neighborhoods uh which were the center of white creativity we know about them we know about greenwich village in the 20s or mm-hmm. we you know uh, cambridge massachusetts or, or whatever uh this is uh, u street isn't really part of the major mm-hmm. american narrative and it and it really should be well we're going to change that with, with this show right here. Um, I, I wanted to shift gears from uh, the, uh, the arts and writing, arts and letters and that kind of stuff to something I learned from your book that I did not know, and that is about Griffith Stadium. I feel embarrassed to say that. Um, but here it's sort of in the heart of uh, – not exactly the heart, but it's at one end of U Street. Uh, um, tell us what it was. And uh, Well, and- Griffith, Stadium, Griffith Stadium was the, the baseball park for uh, the Washington Senators. And you know, it was one of the fascinating parts of the, of the neighborhood is how um, it was a place where people who couldn't stand one another bumped up against yeah. one another. And it had, um, like Harlem, it had a lot of nightclubs and theaters, so whites would go there. But whites also went to the baseball stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what was interesting about about the Griffith Stadium is it had a double life. It had uh, its life as the ballpark for the segregated uh, all-white Redskins and Senators, but then it was rented out for community functions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Homestead Grays of the of the Negro Leagues played there. Um, uh, but there were also uh, mass baptisms um, in the stadium. There, there was, in the 20s and 30s, uh, these incredible community um, high school um, um, Marshall uh, competitions um, uh, with bands and drill teams uh, where thousands of people would come out, African-Americans, to see the, their high schools compete in, in, with drill teams. So it, it was actually a very important institution for the African-American community. It was That part aspect of Griffith Stadium life was largely overlooked. And, of course, the owners of the senators were out-and-out racist. I mean, they, uh, the Griffiths eventually moved the team to Minneapolis because, as one of them stated, uh, is the whitest city in the big leagues. Um, so you, you had this 
deep contradiction between who was owning that stadium and what was going on there. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, let's skip forward in time just a little bit uh, and uh, talk about uh, U Street in the, in the 30s and 40s. Can you uh, mention what was going on there at that time? Well, when you get in the period roughly from the end of the First World War to um, uh, the end of the Second World War, this is often considered to be the golden era Mm -hmm. of U Street. Uh, It's when, uh, you know, African Americans couldn't go to theaters in downtown Washington, so their theaters were along here. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Howard Theater was a very important, it was one of the major theaters. Uh, It was the Apollo Theater before the Apollo Theater, in a way. It, It was the center, and actually the it was the center of the business operation of the so-called Chitlin Circuit was was in in this area, and so you had um, it was a nightlife center, but it always had U Street always had a layered life, and even when it had um, you know it was thought of as the center of it was sort of thought of as Black Broadway and. Um, there's an important sports history. The first African American basketball league was in, mm-hmm. in U Street. Even though it always had that level underneath it because of the churches and um, uh, the schools, there, there was always an intellectual elite. And um, in the year of segregation, Howard University was at the at the pinnacle or one of the pinnacles of of um, black colleges in the U.S., so uh, you had a really vibrant uh, intellectual life. But what was also interesting is more towards the 7th Street end. This was the area where uh, blacks coming in from the rural south would first settle. So you had, again, this this very volatile and creative uh, mix of, of social classes. And so when people look back, they think of the 20s and 30s as a kind of golden era, but underneath that, there was a hollowing out of economic activity and opportunity, particularly when the Depression hit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was really um, a much more complicated story than this glorious era of the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And, and how did the area fare during the Depression? Uh, it, it, you began to get uh, higher concentrations of poverty than there had been before. You began uh, to get higher uh, concentrations of unemployment, all of which become important when uh, you begin the process of desegregation uh, after World War II, because then what happens is that the professional classes who can move elsewhere in Washington move out. And by the time you get into the early 1960s, this is already one of the poorest areas in the city. And it becomes, uh, by the late 60s, early 70s, the, uh, for a while, the, the poorest area with the, the most horrifying health mm-hmm. statistics and so on. And when, and when so you the say, neighborhood really goes through an evolution. Yeah. So were black professionals – I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood. Were black professionals were moving out as well? They began moving out into areas first in um, northwest and northeast Washington, which had been closed to them before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in between 1950 and 1970, you had neighborhoods go from being 85, 90% white to 85, 90% African American. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what you have are 
you basically have the same process with Howard University professors getting jobs at white universities, with you know the Homestead Gray level ball players getting jobs in the big leagues. You you get accountants and lawyers who start getting jobs downtown and start moving further out, and eventually out to the suburbs, and the, and the neighborhood uh, is. Uh, is transformed in it becomes a, a much poorer area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so really the um, the the era of pre civil rights and civil rights, if we can talk about that, wasn't terribly good for uh, U Street because it offered black professionals um, other opportunities, places they could live and move. Well, it had been for very uh, in a very negative way it had been a protected community and then it opens up and and then the other thing that happened is it was, there was a highway that was going to interstate that was going to plow through the neighborhood so that meant uh, until that was resolved in the 1970s landholders landlords weren't going to invest in the property because it was very likely to be condemned mm-hmm. so you, you had um, a very destructive cycle take take hold. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that. Um, you know, the uh, I guess the late fifties and sixties are the great era of urban renewal. Uh, did uh, the people doing the renewal uh, attempt to do any of it uh, in the U Street neighborhood? Well, yeah. I mean, there were there were there were plans. Um, southwest DC, the poorest area in the city, was knocked down and and quote unquote renewed, and thirty five thousand people were displaced. Uh, the poorest people in the city and. Some of them ended up in U Street, but the highway that went through Southwest that was the excuse for the renewal was going to loop around and go through U Street as well. Um, what is interesting in the U Street story, though, and, and why I, I want to avoid the notion that you had this fantastic creative moment in the 30s and then this horrible moment in the 60s and then the city, the area is reborn, I, I think the 30s were if we're less romantic about what was going on, there were lots of bad things happening to people in that neighborhood, poverty, unemployment, the effects of racism in the 30s. And similarly, in the 60s, there were some good things happening. The community began to organize largely around the churches. The churches uh, were able to secure uh, federal grants and were uh, getting very heavily involved in community and urban planning. And one of the reasons why the neighborhood comes back is the highway wasn't built, but the metro was built. Mm-hmm. And that really is because of community activism. So um, um, in the 60s, you begin to get kind of community bottom-up uh, efforts to get involved in urban planning that derails these grand visions of, of building a highway and knocking everything down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Well, let's talk a little bit about... Um uh, I don't know if it's the next episode, but one that uh, certainly people know about. How, how did the uh, the civil rights movement uh, play itself out? I'm talking about the early civil rights movement here before the riots um, in U Street. What is U Street's connection to it? Well, U Street already was well established as a center of activism. Um, the Howard University Law School had been important in the major civil rights cases. Uh, the NAACP legal office. There were lots of, there there were um, a, a lot of uh, boycotts and and um, community organization taking place as early as the 30s in in the area. So it had it had a place in um, in sort of African American civil rights initiatives 
for a long, long time. And in the 60s, it, it, a new generation comes in. Um, it's uh, people who are involved in the civil rights movement uh, in the South, um, and people like Sokoli Carmichael, who moved down to go to Howard. And you had a very active uh, community of civil rights activists. And of course, you know, Washington is the capital, so a lot of the policies that they wanted to influence were to be influenced here. Plus, because there was no home rule, uh, home rule in Washington became a civil rights issue just as much as voting rights in Mississippi did. So in the 60s, you had, again, a very vibrant uh, radical community uh, take, take shape um, in African-American Washington in general. But again, because of the institutions, U Street was one of the focal points of, of, uh, of the movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. But I was going to say, by, by this time, uh, white flight has um, it, it is, is it is proceeding apace, and the city is becoming that is the entire city of Washington D.C. is becoming um, overwhelmingly African American. Is that right? That's correct. Right? Yeah. So it's something like by I don't know I don't remember the statistics, but it's seventy percent or something. It's it's African American. Yeah, and, yeah, and it's a little higher than that. Basically, the white population falls in the. Between 1950 and 1970, and then stabilizes uh, at about I think it's about 170,000 mm-hmm. people, yeah. plus or minus, uh, and it stays that way until about five years ago when it begins to increase again. Yeah, and, uh, and but the African American population uh, was steadier, was was growing with migration from the South until really you get to the 90s, and then you get African American suburbanization taking place. So from uh, it became a majority African-American city in the late 1950s. I think 1957 is the mm-hmm. estimate. And it would remain that until this year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a – I remember when I moved there, um, <clears throat> a friend of mine kept referring to a place called Upper Caucasia. And this, was, <laughs> this is the way he thought about Upper Northwest where there's kind of this corner enclave where – um, whites lived, and then uh, blacks, uh, you know, throughout the rest of the city. Um, let's talk about the the riots themselves, and and I find them very fascinating because it, I think they really shocked um, not not only the nation, but they also shocked the government itself. Can you talk a little bit about the origins of the riots? Well, we have to remember that there had been uh, large scale civic unrest in. Um, in a number of American cities throughout before the unrest hit Washington. And the government was beginning to make contingency plans for unrest in Washington based on the experiences in Watts and Detroit and in Newark. Um, but of course, the, the flashpoint came with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And it had particular meaning in the U Street community because the weekend before, King had spoken at the National Cathedral. And, and there were plans for the Poor People's uh, Campaign uh, to be launched in Washington uh, in a matter of, of days. So uh, King had been very much present and active in the African-American community in Washington. It was a center of activism. And what happened was when the news hit, um, the corner of 14th and U was a major transportation point, and, and um, people gathered there. Uh, and then when he died, uh, it, it exploded. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there was an initial night of violence, and then it calmed down. And, and then, in retrospect, with 
profound stupidity. The head of the D.C. schools decided it was better to have people in kids in school than out on the streets, and they tried to open the school the next day. Schools the next day, which was perceived as a sign of disrespect for Dr. King, and then you had angry uh, kids concentrated in, in school rooms, and the whole thing explodes again by the, the middle of the next day. Mm-hmm. And, and I, one of the things I, I learned when I lived there is that uh, there really were um, a, lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the territory was burnt to the ground. I mean, you that's have, exactly. That's you have exactly. some pictures in the book that look like uh, Berlin in 1945. Right, and 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 there were riot quarters up 14th Street, uh, along U Street, along 7th Street, uh, H Street, which is the last of the riot quarters to to become. It's coming back. Uh, it's being redeveloped now, um, and. Um, uh, this was a real. First of all, it was a real problem for the community when when everything calmed down because a lot of the grocery stores um you couldn't you couldn't buy food in, in the area mm-hmm. for uh, for a while um uh and and then there were sort of great consternation about what to do with these big open scars in the middle of the city mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean one of the interesting things to me was that this is i guess when i was in washington i can't remember exactly when it was i it was in the 90s certainly but you could walk up and down uh I think it was 14th Street, and you could see uh, really uh, sort of just large open fields. Right, I mentioned this uh, building with expensive condominiums at the beginning of, of, the, of the program. That was built on an area that had been turned into a parking lot, basically. So it wasn't as if one of the complica- complicating factors of gentrification in this neighborhood is it's not simply that you know, rich people of any color are moving in and buying property and tearing it down and building new buildings or renovating it. It's it, it, these are properties that are being built in some cases uh, where there was nothing. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really new development yeah. as well as uh, restoration, and that makes it that makes for a complicated story. Mm-hmm. And uh, did. I, I suppose this is a, an almost a rhetorical question. Did white flight uh, 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 increase? Did it accelerate after these riots? Yeah. I, I mean, although as it, what, what is interesting about it, if you look at the census data, even though the perception was that whites were leaving, in fact, the white population stabilized around 1970. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, so the flight actually had been taking place before, mm-hmm. uh, although the perception was um, – uh, that white flight continued. In, in fact, uh, when you look at the census data, it, it, there had been a kind of equilibrium that was reached in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I want to talk kind of selfishly about, um, and I don't even know if you're prepared to do this, but I'd like you to, uh, Marion Barry. He's already involved at this point in 68. He's, he's, uh, his political career is launched, right? Yes. Yes. He started out as a neighborhood activist. Right. And, uh-huh. So you know, I, go on, become mayor. I, I think that much of the rest of the history of, of U Street can kind of be told through Marion Barry's story. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but um, no, I, I think Marion Barry is actually the pivotal figure in late 20th century Washington. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. There is no one who understood. Uh, this city better than Marion Barry understood it. There's nobody who understood its pathologies uh, better than Marion Barry did. Um, you know, he he was um, is 
uh, a very gifted uh, politician who managed to evolve as uh, the political situation evolved. I mean, let's not forget he was largely elected the first time by whites and and the air and and some African Americans, but whites in that area you called Upper Caucasia, Upper Northwest Ward Three. Um, he was in, after he was endorsed by the Washington Post. They largely voted for Marion Barry and helped put him in mm-hmm. the first time. So, uh, you know, he he um, he's a kind of politician who evolved as I, I think he himself calls himself a situationalist, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the story of his career. Yeah, situationalist. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, for those who don't know, Marion Barry had. Um a lot of uh, up there were peaks and troughs in his career, uh, and uh, he is a, one of the great survivors, I would say, um, of all time. And uh, well, you know, he he's become a caricature, and it's very interesting. I go around talking about the, the book, and um, God, I, I was doing one book event, and somebody mentioned his name, and the uh, the audience started coming almost to physical blows over over Mary and Barry, and yeah. they forgot about about. Those of us on the panel who are sitting, <laughs> sitting up on stage, Marion Barry still generates a lot of emotion, and part of the part of the problem is that for a lot of whites, he's a caricature. What do you know mm-hmm. about Marion Barry? He's arrested on a, um, in a hotel room smoking crack cocaine, um, and that's all true. But he also you know, he he was a uh, he almost finished a Ph.D. in chemistry mm-hmm. uh, when he decided to become an activist. Uh, he's a very gifted politician. As I said, he really understood the city. In terms of, of the U Street story, perhaps the single most important decision anybody made that brought the neighborhood back was a decision he made to build a municipal office building at the corner of 14th and U. Mm-hmm. So you can't talk about U Street coming back unless you talk about about the role Marion Barry played. Um, and there are a lot of African Americans in Washington, D.C., who uh, feel as if um, they directly benefited from his time in office. So, um, yeah, he, he's, the, he's the pivotal figure in, in um, the Washington story uh, for oh, 30, 40 years. Yeah, I've been to that building. It's a nice building. Um, it is a nice building. Yeah. So, U Street, I guess, has its nadir in 1968. Uh, but uh, for anybody that's been to Washington recently, they know that, um, at least in some sense, by some people's lights, uh, it's back in a big way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the – should well, I say it, resurrection? It became, what do I say? It, I don't know what to it, say here. Yeah. yeah. Well, it became beginning in the, in the 1990s a kind of hot, hip spot. A lot of clubs moved in. A lot of bars moved in. Uh, there was efforts to capitalize on um, – uh, the history to make the link to to you know Black Broadway. Uh, one of the reasons why a lot of the edgier clubs moved in and some edgy theaters moved in in the, in the 90s is rents were low. Um, <laughs> so you know we we tend to forget that, but that's you know this is where you could open up. Um, but what has happened over the last 10 or 15 years, as it's become uh, uh, an entertainment spot, a, desti- a destination spot, the population has changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the latest census, the, inf- the data that's just coming out now, it's, it's no longer even a majority African-American mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yeah. And there's one census um, track um, 
between, I think it's 10th and 12th Street on both sides of U Street, where the African-American population has declined by 30%, but the white population has increased by almost 200%, and the Asian-American population has increased by even more. Mm -hmm. So it's an area uh, that's becoming younger. Uh, it's becoming much more diverse. Uh, Washington as a whole is becoming much more diverse than it ever was, and it's reflected in, in U Street. And so it is a symbol of a new Washington, which um, is vibrant and dynamic and exciting and much uh, much more urban in many ways than, than Washington had ever been before. But that new Washington, I think for long-time Washingtonians, uh, it's, a, it's a very much of a mixed development. Mm -hmm. And should we, uh, you know, again, I, I, I guess I'm always suspicious of this kind of nostalgia because I'm old enough now to have lived in the good old days and they weren't that good. <laughs> right, right. No, I, I don't, I, this is not, I, I mean, this is not an area to romanticize. Uh, I, I think, I, I, I think culturally and symbolically, it's a very, very important neighborhood. But we also have to understand that it was a center of the crack epidemic. Yep. It was a center of real poverty, of real crime, of uh, real destruction and self-destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, it, there, the, the problem in, in talking about a neighborhood like this is when you talk at the macro level, it, it is in many ways a much more positive situation but when you look at individual lives you see that there are people who've been crushed by the changes mm -hmm. the, the people who rented places who can no longer afford to be there the the small time store owners who owned a corner grocery store in the 60s who can't afford to be there anymore These, for them this is all a real tragedy uh, but when you take a look at the macro level it's it's um any any macro level indi indicator, it's great for for Washington. Mm -hmm. Another kind of interesting thing, uh, I don't know the story of this, but I suspect that you could write a good article for the Atlantic Monthly or something about it. Is well, let me put it this way: uh, there's a place in Iowa City where I live uh, called the Hamburg Inn Number Two, and mm -hmm. I, I believe Reagan was the first president to go there when he was on the campaign trail, and now it has become an obligatory stop. Every presidential candidate, and I live two blocks from there. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, but basically f three years ago, uh, you know, I had presidential candidates on my front doorstep, um, which actually wasn't really very comfortable. But the only other place I know about like that in America is, in fact, on U Street. That is Ben's Chili Bowl. They all go there now, don't they? Everybody goes goes <laughs> to Ben's. And, you know, Ben's is a great place. What's not to like about Ben's? But it has become an icon. Yeah. And um, how the heck did that start, though? I mean, who was the first? Do you know the story at all? Like, how did it? Well, the story, uh, the big part of the story of Ben's is that it remained open during uh, the events in '68. Yep. And it served uh, everybody, uh, and um, it served the police and you know, the National Guard troops as well as people who probably had been out. Uh, they had been trying to arrest. Mm -hmm. So it became a kind of legendary figure coming out of those events. But the bigger story, I think, of Ben's is that Ben and Virginia Ali are, well, Ben is no longer with us, but they were really wonderful people who gave a lot back to the community. And uh, Virginia Ali is one of the most incredible people I've, I've ever met. And they really took 
care about um, the people who would come in there. So there's a real soft spot in a lot of people's hearts for for Ben's because of how the Ali family treated people when when mm-hmm. they and the, you know, when the neighborhood was down on his luck and the and the and the people uh, were in trouble and yet Ben's always treated them with respect. So that that made it uh, an immediate sort of. That, that kind of created the legend. And then when outsiders began to discover the neighborhood, well, there Ben's was. And so they discovered Ben's. And then it became a kind of hip thing to do when you come to Washington to go to Ben's. It, it, it um, is a hip thing to do. You're exactly right. My friends would suggest that we would go. You know, actually, I'll admit I've never been there. I, I, I'm sure well, you should, you, you should, you should go, but, um, but it is a little bit, it's, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel good they're making a lot of money but it, you know, it, that, that's what they're in business for yep. so there's nothing wrong with that but but you know it, it, it's it's not quite the same place unless you go there for breakfast that you know tourists don't get there too often for breakfast. Yeah, I, I, I imagine it's not well I'm, I'm sure that you know there's a current iteration one of the things your book shows is uh, neighborhoods really change and I'm sure the current iteration of U Street will not be identical to the next iteration of U Street whatever that is so I, I mean, oh, I'm confident no, that, about that I, I, I think that's really one of the lessons of the book that you know, cities and neighborhoods are they're alive and yep. and they evolve and they change and you know if <sighs> neighborhood change is hard for all of us because we have a concept in our minds of where we live mm-hmm. and then one day you wake up and <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're in yeah. you know the middle of Iowa or you're on U Street in Washington D.C. you wake up and you look around and you think. God, this isn't where I thought I lived. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, but, and, then it, but then it, you know, then the next generation it becomes their home, and then they think about it kind of elegiacally when it's not their home anymore. And this just goes. This is, I guess, the story of American cities as there's this constant well, turnover. Well, story, uh, story of cities. So it's in general, yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's a general phenomenon, and you want that. You don't, yeah, because it's it's that's why cities are vibrant, creative places. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree with you completely. So. Anyway, today we've been talking with uh, Blair Rule about uh, his terrific book, Washington's U Street, a biography. Uh, thanks very much for being with us today, Blair. I want to close the interview by posing our um, traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I don't know that I have a specific project, but I have a specific question, which comes out of the U Street book, which uh, I organized the book around a quote from a wonderful novelist, Olga Grushin, who talks about the highest achievement of humankind being the creation of beauty in the face of stupidity, folly, and, and injustice. <laughs> and, and I want how is it that cities spark creativity in people? What is, what is the chemical reaction that takes place? And U Street has started me thinking about that. I don't quite know how that gets transformed into a, a, a book project, but... Uh, that's the area I want to... Well, when it does get transferred into a book project, you give us a call, okay? And we'll I will do that. interview you about that one. All right, today we've been talking with, as I said, Blair Rubel about his book, Washington's U Street, a biography. Blair, thanks very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Marshall. It's been great. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Blair Rubel about his new book, Washington's U Street, a biography. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>